Greetings, everybody, and welcome back to Calliope Sanctum. So I'm recording this August episode, actually between the end of July and the beginning of August. I recorded this episode's story, which is called Calypso, the day that Venus left her shadow. That was not really intentional, it's just what happened, and somehow that felt like a good inauguration of the telling of this story in this very potent, very deep, very intense time that we are all in day by day and week by week and moon by moon. So this story is called Calypso, um, and it is about Calypso, who is a sea nymph from um, that we know of you know, most famously from Homer's Odyssey. And Calypso is known as the nymph that um, Odysseus gets sort of ensorcelled by and trapped by for seven or eight years on her island, Ogygia, against his will, they say. Um, But she wouldn't let him leave, and she was just so ravenous for a man that what could he do? Um... This telling of Calypso always rubbed me a bit the wrong way for various reasons, and I do explore that in this story. Calypso is the daughter of Titans and a powerful Nereid, a powerful spirit of the sea. So I tried to give her back that power in this telling, and it really... um, kind of startled me what came through when I wrote this. I wrote it more than a year ago in May of 2019 when I was living in Crete, and it has been sitting deeply with me since then. Um, Other threads of her voice have come through, but this is the most complete, and it felt the most relevant to this moment right now to share with you. So I think that's all I'm going to say. Her telling gives you a lot of background so that you, I hope, can, with a little bit that I've told you here, orient to um, who she is all the way. She speaks more about Odysseus and Odysseus's journey and her part in it. So I don't want to share more with you now because I think that there's enough in the story. So thank you for listening. Um, I've missed sharing these podcasts with you and I took you know, a very needed break, I'm sure, We are all feeling that right now in so many different ways. I don't think I'm going to be posting um, new episodes weekly right now. It it may be just monthly or by the moon, or it may be bi-weekly depending on what feels right. And, you know, if you enjoy these tellings, um, so many of my shorter pieces right now are generated by my monthly deadlines on my Patreon, where I explore right now um, different seasonal themes, different um, earth arising themes each month, and then write a poem, an essay, um, a guided meditation, and teach one writing workshop each month there. Um, And these writing workshops are really more dreaming and myth excavating workshops than like craft workshops, so to speak. We generate a lot of deep dreaming, imaginative, imaginal realm material together, and it's really wonderful. And then also every month, I also share a recording 
played by the lute player that you hear in the introduction here, Yanis Linardakis. So there's different Cretan songs each month shared that kind of weave through the themes of the month's writing and just give you a taste of the earth and musical soul of that land, which is so threaded through um, all of these offerings, really, all the myths that I am exploring and honors um, kind of that indigenous ground of that place through the songs that he brings to us here. And there's lyrics posted and the translation as well. Just to share some of the context from which all of this work is coming, if you feel like diving deeper in between episodes, if you feel like supporting the journey that it takes each month to bring you um, these stories, I would love to see you there. It's a really rich experience for me too, and I'm really, really grateful um, for each and every one of your support. So that's all for my introduction. I hope you enjoy this story and that you keep yourself well grounded and go slowly these days. Calypso. Calypso made the thousand orchids flourish. She brought them from every end of her island and tended patches of each near the entrance of her cave. They were elaborate in structure, animal-tongued, strange-scented. They filled the air with dreams. Some resembled spires of tiny flying women, others the faces of daemons, velvet, pink, and green. Four springs poured water into four streams that met in the meadow below her grotto, the world's center, a pool. There the wild iris grew and the white-laced parsleys and valerian, the shining asphodel, and in among them all the thousand orchids speaking mystery. It was there in the water, clear under a black moon, that she saw what was to come. She had seen it many times before, like when she saw a beautiful man of Crete wearing great white wings of wax and feather fly too near the sun and fall, burning, into the sea. Then she had known that some great unraveling had begun. But never had she seen anything like the visions that came to her in the pool the night before Odysseus landed on her Ojigia. She saw a war that turned men first to fire and then to hollowness. She saw a golden-haired woman at the prow of a warship, weeping, tearing at her clothes, her face, her arms, her breasts. Helen. All the fury of the pythoness Apollo had killed at Delphi seeped from her like miscarriage blood, and she collapsed. In the pool, Calypso saw that the reign of the Hore was ending. Those dancing vortices who served the mighty Aphrodite. The reign of the Anemone king, her beloved, was ending. The reign of the Mer-prince, the wild god of the vine. The reign of immortality in the life and death of green. She saw the reign of peace fall as Helen fell, as the Pythoness fell, as Troy Clytemnestra killed her husband Agamemnon, war hero of Troy, when he came home for sacrificing their virgin daughter Iphigenia to the winds in order to secure smooth sailing. When her son Orestes in turn killed her, he was not punished for matricide. 
only she for murder, and so with her the old world died, for there were new laws now. So Calypso saw how the griffin daemons, the bird women of the seasons who carried the weather and the changing stars, who guarded the gates of life and death, became the furies, the Aranes, and filled the sky for a day and a night with their dragon rage. On that night, uncountable stars fell, and a terrible heat swept the palaces of kings. The crops of barley, wheat, and grape were blasted to the earth, for the laws of nature had been broken. The code of honor that had bound men to life and not power had been burned, and the songs of war glory were all that now could be heard in the litanies of the priests. Calypso was and was not a human woman. Her name means that which is concealed. She is the cave's darkness, the unseen face of the moon, but equally she is the knowledge of orchid root and spring water, star genius and bird call. She is a lineage of women in hiding, carrying the remnants of the older law. She was a goddess in hiding, a daughter of Atlas who held up the sky, a titan from the time before the war gods of Olympus had come on the shields and hooves of bright-haired kings. Her braids were black and heavy. Her hands were small and brown, her body carob-dark, broad and supple as the tide. Her eyes were sad and amber-colored. They shone. Her island, Ogygia, was a vortex in the hot southern sea, and she was the bright center where the old powers had come to hide. Four springs arising, threaded together to keep the fates alive. Outside of longitude and latitude, sister of the evening star, Ogygia dwelt outside time's line. It sat, rather, at the center of a labyrinth. Anywhere the old laws of earth hide, even at the feet of Mary where the serpent coils, even at her forehead, for there is Aphrodite's crescent and Aphrodite's crown, there Calypso still resides. East of the sun, west of the moon, beyond the sunset, inside the morning star, at the center of the corona borealis, the middle of a dream or the voice that says, wait, look, the power that makes the spring water arise pure and shining from the earth. This is the original fountain of all divinity and all worship. This is the way, ambrosia, for we partake of earth's eternity when we kneel low, drinking the shine of stone and sun, of moon and root and star. She is in this voice. And she was the last of the old faith to try to stop Odysseus. Neither Scylla and Charybdis, serpent maiden monsters of the ocean's chasm, rages of whirlpool and all the swallowing undertoes, darkest thrash of storm of chaos could stop him, nor the sirens, nereids of ocean's light and wine dark song, nor the might of the cyclops, the stone children who see clearly with the spirit eye nor yet the wise, powerful Circe in her alchemies, her bright beauty like beaten gold, her lionesses, her magic words. There was the innocence of Nausicaa thrown into his path with her golden ball, 
but she was already too obedient to the new order to have much effect, though her fresh heart might have healed him. He said he held to his Penelope, twenty years at home, devoted, but just as much he held to the conviction of his own absolute power over wife, son, and island. And blood rage was in him now. War had broken him as it had broken all the veterans of Troy. A poison had come in where balance once rested. He did not know when to stop killing now, for he, like all men who fight for kings, saw how killing brought gold, brought power, brought worship, brought a reign that was not subservient to the old laws whereby each king ruled only eight years. But rather... He ruled in perpetuity into old age when his son and only his son succeeded him. None could stop him, for the tides of power had shifted. The old forces had been broken down, ruined, melted, and beaten into Athena's armor, hiding her snakes and her wings. This is the moment when the blood of men killed in war took the place of the blood of women shed under the dark moon, and they could not stop him, for the blood of regeneration and peace can only move as the earth and moon and sea move slowly in balance, while the blood of war moves fast as cataclysm. It's not the same as the blood of animals who kill to survive. They stay inside the circle. They bow to earth's laws and never lie. Odysseus lied and betrayed his way across the Mediterranean, across the seas. When at last he came home to the household, Penelope and their son had been running on their own in the old way for two decades. He turned his own hall into a field of massacre. He killed even the handmaids who had consorted with the many suitors come for Penelope's favor. He destroyed every threat to his authority and set his wife once more beneath his rule, though she, some said, was in fact the daughter of Wild Pan himself. All of this Calypso saw as past, as future, as figures and as shades in the water of her fourfold spring. She saw it by the dark stars, by the dark moon, bleeding her monthly blood, silent among the orchids and the iris of her field. The late spring wind pushed warm through the cypress and the alder trees that grew around her valley. It fell upon the young-leafed figs and the carobs hung with long green pods like a woman's thousand earrings. She saw that this man was coming to her, that the ocean had a hand in this, Okeanos of the world-encircling waters would drive Odysseus to wreck upon Ogygia's rocks, and she was being asked to do something, do something, do something, keep him for the eight years of the old kingship, teach him with your body the rhythm and delight of the foremothers and forefathers, show him the fourfold spring and the original holiness and earth's darkness, teach him the language of the owl and the falcon, the raven and the sparrowhawk, and all the singing passerines, teach him what the orchid knows and the grass snake and the stars and how the moon records the 19 different mysteries of the ocean and of a woman's psyche, too. 
Initiate him, Calypso. Heal what war has broken in his father line and in his life. This she heard in the water. And she saw the great hall of Ithaca, sick and dripping with the blood and viscera of a hundred men, and the courtyard where the twelve maids hung from the washing line like rags. It was a warning, one possible future. From where she sat, there were many. Where she sat was the center. The orchids were closed in the darkness. The fourfold spring sang. The pool grew opaque as blood, the wind strangely hot. There will be a storm by morning, she felt. He will be wrecked by morning on my shore. She knew this all at once and trembled, understanding it for truth. The massacre in the hall was not yet truth, but his coming by storm ran through her body like fast-swallowed wine, like the taste of salt. She went slowly through the warm night then, barefoot in the meadow, back to her cave, but she could not sleep. She was too hot, though the warm air did not penetrate very deeply into her grotto. She was afraid. Her hair felt heavy, and even the thinnest shift was too much against her skin. She bound her hair high around her head and stood naked at her loom until daybreak, weaving her finest thread, purple dyed from the murex shell into a great veil. She sang to herself every song she had ever been taught in the great stone temples of her four mothers, all the parts and the harmonies and lullabies she had learned from Libya and hunting songs she had heard from the northern mountains of Thrace. She sang to keep herself from collapsing as she had seen Helen collapse, to keep herself from hiding her cave and her island in a glamour to avoid the weight of what was coming to protect the last mysteries, to keep them untouched by shame or violence. Only later would she understand that this was also an animal instinct in her, the blood instinct of a woman, that she was, more than anything, protecting her own heart from the wreckage sent to her shore. Danger, something in her had moaned when she had seen his face in the dark pool when she had seen his heavy arms, his sharp and lonely eyes. Then she had taken it for fear of violence. Later, she knew it for fear of love. At dawn, she stood at her loom, still, singing. The songs had become circles. She was dizzy. An old light shone through her. There was blood on her thighs. Her hair was a thicket, a crown. The shuttle in her hands flashed golden. The weaving was as violet as the morning sea. A little owl still called in the nearest tree, even after the swallows rose. It was the small Shope's owl who had taught Calypso most of what she knew of the island's many animal languages. He is coming, the owl said. Do not fear him. Go to him. I fear him, she replied. Go to bed. It's not the time for owls now. One of the day hunters will come to knock you from your tree. You think I am so slow I cannot dart from them? I think you are small and don't see well by day. And I think you're afraid. 
and hiding inside all your woman's mysteries so he will fear you too much to learn anything from you. Such a man could never love me. The words echoed strangely in her mind in the place where she and the little scopes owl spoke. Where had they come from? Why was it love she had spoken and not learned from? Those words had not come from the calypso she knew, keeper of earth's mysteries, keeper of the old language of titans and stone speakers, of Okeanos, Tethys, Atlas, Kronos, Rhea, she who had never felt weak before a man's love, who had never feared scorn, who had lived always in the island's heart according to the custom of creation. Never before had she, Calypso, felt inadequate. Perhaps, she thought, I am afraid of at last being seen. I, whose destiny it has been to remain hidden with the syllabary of forgotten times, I, who can spell every stone and ore, every mineral, metal, star, seed, and root, I, who know the language of changing, the grammar of the way, the ninety-nine dervish steps to the center of the world, I, whose whole purpose is to conceal, as the earth shelters seeds until the time when the old knowledge will need no shelter, no island veiled by sunset's purple mists. Perhaps, she thought, I am afraid to fail. Perhaps, I know already that I will. But none of this explained the word love. The owl did not reply. He had gone to roost deeper in the cypress grove, His mind was hidden from her now, that fathomless midnight mind which always felt to her like a many-faceted jasper stone, carven, deep, and shining. She wondered what her mind felt like to him. Tomorrow night, she would ask him, though he would likely give the kind of obtuse reply that only an owl can muster, who sees so easily into shadows. Sun lit the cave entrance. A man stood there. She was still singing. Now they were the owl's songs, strange and hooting. He had followed the sound and stood there on the rock ledge where the wild valerian grew and the yellow-flowered viper grass, the purple blooms of bitter onion, the pink gladiolas, the grapevine that climbed in an arch over the cave mouth, shining now with new green and the first hint of fruit. His chin was wet from where he'd drunk at her spring. She saw her utter otherness in his stricken eyes. She saw that he was fighting the twins' fear and revulsion, and a deeper erotic awe that lifted up from the wet earth through his weary body. This kind of woman he had never seen. She was very nearly wild. There were hundred-mouthed orchids in the heavy black crown of her hair. Menstrual blood now made a line all the way to her inner ankle, and her fingers were purple-stained from the loom. The old light was still shining through her from the night singing, from the murex weft. Her eyes were a fragrant resin that seemed to scent the whole cave. She saw the strangeness of her cave, too, in his eyes. They scanned it almost tactically, her bed of sweet rushes, the neat-stacked juniper wood by the hearth, the simple baskets where she kept dried herbs and meats, berries and nuts, the earthenware urn full of fresh water, the big copper kettle, 
the red-painted glyphs in deeper shadow, the holy dots, the antlered god, the serpent, the lioness, the evening star. She saw her primitiveness in his eyes, saw how he could not understand the elegance here, the way nothing rang a note of untruth and nothing lied. His eyes revolted at the bright blood on her legs, and she felt naked for the first time in her life. She almost took an ochre shawl down from a hook to cover herself, but stopped, and instead took a step closer to him, into the daylight, letting the blood fall, forcing him to look, or look away. She was trembling. He terrified her. But underneath his stricken look, she saw how dizzied he was, too. Never had he been encircled so entirely by the dreaming earth. Never had he wanted so badly to sleep, to weep. Never had he come so close to letting go of the hierarchies of his gods as when Odysseus first beheld Calypso, standing in the half-lit cave, her hair violet in that light, her eyes utterly without guile, and so deep, and animals deep, that he thought, at last, at last, peace. This thought alone frightened him more than anything before Calypso ever had done, more even than war, for it shook his sensibilities and the very foundation of his reason. Surely, he thought, he had stepped into a dream. Surely she was a demoness, all bloody, all curved, all bare and dark. But all he felt in his body was a longing so intense, he would later turn it into hate for her. Hate for the shuddering possibility poised in her unfathomable, shining eyes. Peace. 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 Oh, mysterious, soft-lit, holy peace. Come, Odysseus. You are weary, she said, stepping toward him, the grapevines touching her hair. Come, rest a while here. Later, he would hate her for disarming him so, for the way his body, inside her body, in the meadow, in the bed of rushes and soft marten skins, in the sea, dissolved in an ecstasy he had never known into a resounding, luminous depth that might have been the beginning of time. He hated her for that uncharted pleasure, for how weak she made him feel, how soft, how dreaming, how the owls and falcons began to speak in his dreams, how his name began to mean little to him and his kingdom and even the lineage of his forefathers, how she seemed to be asking him to make himself all over again, to heal. He hated her because he did not want, in the end, to heal, if it meant opening every scar again to lay the poultice in. He'd rather poison He'd rather poison, he'd rather poison and keep the story he was made of, or he feared he'd become nothing. Ten years of war and killing had not made him strong enough for this, for the lancing of that lifelong pain. It was too easy to scorn her instead, even as he burned for the absolute surrender of her body, of her cave, of her singing, of her laughter 
of her bare feet in the meadow where she crouched to dig the orchid bulbs to teach him of their uses and their many names or on the high ridges how she searched the cliffs for falcons predicting storms by starshine or by the cloud patterns over the sea it was not true what the poet said of calypso that she forced odysseus to her bed that she kept him against his will, that she clung to him, pathetic, ravenous, indecent with desire. It was not true. But it was true that she loved him. And it was true that for all her love, she failed. Then even the poets could not see beyond her, beyond Odysseus and his odyssey to the balance that had been before. They had no map for that country, They had no words. The orchids still bloom in the meadow by the fourfold spring, in the vortex in the sea, where veiled Calypso lives, guarding her syllabary. She lost nothing of what she knew to Odysseus, only a piece of her heart, which, after these three millennia, she has regrown. And she is there still, gathering orchid roots, watching the water of her pool. Apocalypse speaks in it now, and Revelation, too. Revelation.